Welcome to the BNA Talks podcast with me, Wayne Massey. We are working our way through Mark's Gospel and we have reached chapter 9. Um, so we've, ter- we've titled uh, our series in Mark, The Kingdom Draws Near. They're the first words that Jesus says in the Gospel. The kingdom is drawn near, repent and believe the good news. And so as we're exploring the Gospel and we're looking at its elements, we're asking ourselves, what does it mean and what does it look like that in Jesus the kingdom of God has drawn near? If you're new to the podcast, what I do is I read a section of the text, then I talk about it, and then I move on, and I read another section of the text. Uh, this is designed just to help you, as you read the Gospel, and um, pick up on some of the themes, uh, some of the images Mark uses, some of the theology that lies behind it, and just to begin to think about how we apply this to our lives as followers of Jesus. So, Mark chapter 9. And reading from verse 1. And he said to them, that's Jesus, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. I'm going to stop there just so we remind ourselves of the context from chapter 8. Peter has just declared that Jesus is the Messiah. Who do you say I am? Jesus says you are the Messiah. And then Jesus has then gone to predict his death and to talk about the way of the cross. So, Lose a life to find it. Take up your cross and follow me. And so you can imagine the scenario where they're going, oh my word, what, what's going on? I don't understand this because the Messiah is supposed to be a great conquering king and he's talking about dying and then he's talking about us living a similar life. And Jesus' response to them is, you're going to see the kingdom of God. You're going to see the kingdom come in power. It points immediately to the next bit that we're going to read, which is the transfiguration, but also, of course, points beyond to Easter and the resurrection, and even then beyond that to Pentecost and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and the kingdom spreading from there. So Jesus says, you will see the kingdom come in power in a moment or in a few days, uh, in a wee while at Easter, and then spreading throughout the world after Easter and Pentecost. Let's read on from verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them and a voice came from the cloud. Listen to my son whom I love. This is my son whom I love. Forgive me. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. Quick aside, uh, how do you know Jesus uh, was Irish? Jesus replied, to be sure. Anyway, so the transfiguration. Um, We're living in a point of history, as I record this. Uh, We're coming out of a global pandemic, uh, or we think we are, but we don't know what lies ahead. Uh, Russia has invaded Ukraine. The world is a kind of a volatile and uncertain place. And whether it be in the individual stuff of your life or in global politics, we often find ourselves wondering what is going on 
And as people who follow Jesus, we probably often find ourselves wondering, God, what are you up to? And what we have just read is a response that comes to the disciples who were probably beginning to ask those questions. What's going on here? You're the Messiah and yet you're going to die. And the response is basically an encounter with God that reminds the disciples that he is in charge and that he has a plan. And so the circumstances haven't changed. Jesus is the Messiah and yet when we're traveling to Jerusalem where he is going to die and where they are going to be scattered. But on the way, the reminder is God is in charge and he has a plan. And so quite often in the circumstances of our life, no matter what is going on, that is the key thing for us to step into on a daily basis. God is in charge and he has a plan. How this works itself out in the Transfiguration is this event is um, soaked, is the word I would use, in Old Testament imagery that locates the person, the ministry of Jesus in the history of God and the people of Israel. So that for these three guys, Peter, James and John, they can see that this is a continuation of everything that has gone before them. And in fact, it's where everything that has gone before them has been working up to. Let me just give you an example of these Old Testament imageries. Six days. In Exodus 24, on the mountain of Sinai, on the Mount of Sinai, the second time that Moses gets the, the law, the Ten Commandments, the, the Lord settles on the mountain for how many days? Six days. They go to up a high, Jesus leads them up a high mountain. Where do you go to meet God in the Old Testament? Whether it be to get the law or whether it be if you've run away from the king um, and you need to be reassured, you go up a high mountain. A high mountain is the place of revelation. And there, up that high mountain, Jesus is transfigured or transformed. The, the Greek is literally metamorphosis, metamorphosized uh, before them, which is what Paul says happens to us when we become, when we become uh, Christians and are born again. We go through a metamorphosis, a change. Um, and they are seeing Jesus um, as he will be. They're seeing Jesus as he will be in heaven um, after the resurrection and the ascension. And the fact that his clothes are dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world, is not because uh, he uses daz, but because that's cosmic imagery pointing to who Jesus is. White and dazzling um, points to the cosmic nature of who Jesus is. And who comes? Elijah, the great prophet who must come again. Um, and Moses, the founder, as it were, of the, of, the, of, of the Jewish religion, the one who received the law. So, so straight away, there's this whole, it's just massive Old Testament imagery. And it's saying to these guys, Peter, James and John, look, trust me, I have a plan. I'm in charge. This is all, everything before has been working up to this and will work on from it. Now, Peter, this is where I think Peter is quite like me. I don't think I'd know what to do in that situation. So I'd simply say anything. And what Peter says sounds odd, but actually isn't that odd because the festival of um, booths, the festival of shelters was, a, was an Old Testament festival uh, where they remembered the acts of God. And so Peter was thinking about this and there was a sort of a, a Jewish hope that maybe one day they would live in tents again uh, in the future in a way that they kind of did in the Exodus. So it's this sense of rooting it again. Peter is blurting something out but he is still rooting it in the jewish faith um shall we live shall we live in tents um but that's not what's needed now and a cloud appears the cloud signifies the presence of god this is my son whom i love listen to him i'm in charge i have a plan this is the guy to listen to Verse eight's key. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus, or some translations, only Jesus. 
Um, they don't need Moses. They don't need Elijah. It's all about Jesus. Um, friends, the centre of our Christian faith is Jesus. Uh, the name before the name before which every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Jesus Christ is Lord. There is no other name under heaven in which anybody is saved. Um, only Jesus. And so what they are being pointed forward to and what we are being reminded is that everything has been working up to this point and works on from this point. Only Jesus. Now, the, he then goes and he talks to them about, uh, he gives them orders uh, to, to stay quiet until he'd risen from the dead. And they kept the matters themselves. He said, what does rising from the dead mean? Because, of course, dead people don't rise. So they still don't understand it. But as we know, they will. And then this section ends with the conversations about Elijah. So Elijah, um, if you, as you might remember, disappears off to heaven in a chariot. So is he coming back? And the Jewish people are looking for him to come back. But actually, Jesus lands the ministry of Elijah in the ministry of John the Baptist, who has come, who has prepared the way and who has been treated, of course, as we know, dreadfully. They've done to him everything they wished. And um, so Elijah has come. And now it is Jesus. And what we're seeing is that um, the coming of the Messiah looks very different to what they expected. Take up your cross and follow me. You must lose your life in order to find it. I'm going to die. And that's the thing, like, <clears throat> mind blown, um, that, that culture always struggles with the gospel, is the fact that God would come, make himself one of us, make himself a servant, and then die in our place. We don't construct our gods like that. They are, they're far off and remote. They're violent. They're capricious. They're the gods of Rome and the gods of Greek uh, mythology. And when they're not gods, they're the kind of leaders who throw their weight around. Um, and yet God himself, when he shows up, he shows up as one of us to serve us and to rescue us. Um, when Messiah comes, it's so different to what we expect. Listen to him. Jesus is is our greater Moses. Um, Moses points us towards Jesus, the one who, who will fulfill the law that God has given. And that means that we can be freed from it. Listen to him. Do I, do you listen to Jesus? How do we listen to Jesus? Um, primarily through the word of God. Uh, scripture is living and active. Do you read it daily? Um, hear the words of Jesus throughout. Through prayer, do we allow uh, the Holy Spirit, the, the Spirit that Jesus sent to speak to us as we pray and to guide and lead us, uh, and, and through, through others in the church uh, who speak God's wise words to us. But am I somebody who's got my mindset, Jesus, what are you saying? Am I listening to you? So that's the transfiguration. God is in charge. God has a plan, and it's all about Jesus. Uh, so let's lean into him. Let's follow him. Let's listen to him. Listen to him. Let's read on. Verse 14 to 29. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teach, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground, rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? 
From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him, but you can do anything. Take pity on us and help us. If you can, Jesus said. Uh, Everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said. I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. So come back down the mountain and there's this argument going on. What's the argument about? Well, the argument is about the fact that the disciples haven't been able to free the boy from the demonic power. And so the teachers are all going, mm, you've got no authority. What's going on here? Remember the context that these guys had been sent out a few chapters ago by Jesus uh, and had given authority to do this kind of thing. So um, it's not worked. Um, when, you, when you hear the description of what this demon does to this child and for how long it's been, it is awful and it is distressing. And it is a reminder that the demonic is always destructive. It might begin attra- in attraction, but it is always destructive. That's how you can tell the work of Satan and the enemy um, compared to the work of common grace that people might do uh, in what it is to be made by and in the image of God or the work of the Spirit of God and the Kingdom of God. The work of the enemy is always destructive. Um, I love the father who goes, if you can do anything. And Jesus says, if you can. And then the the boy's father says, I do believe, but help my unbelief. I love his honesty before Jesus, which is, I want you to do something, and I think you can, but I also think you can't. And do you notice that Jesus doesn't go, oh, don't be, you know, he doesn't rebuke him. He, he, he acts. It's just a real reminder that we can bring our belief and our unbelief to Jesus and ask him to help us with it. The tension here is that our lack of faith, our lack of prayer does have consequences. And it's not that, yet, and this is the tension, so actually if I don't pray, and if I don't have faith, there are consequences. But also, that some of the people with the greatest of faith and the greatest of prayer lives face some of the most unimaginable things. And that is the tension of the life of prayer. God calls us into praying, and has, choos- has chosen to partner with us and that our prayers make a difference, but also has chosen to operate in grace, and, and, and so there are the times when prayers are answered or when prayers we think are not answered because the only thing that doesn't happen when we pray is nothing. And it's about trusting God. Um, and so there's this tension in the life of faith and in the life of prayer whereby we're throwing ourselves completely on God and trusting him to work. Um, and so if somebody is ill, it's not because they don't have faith that they haven't sinned. But actually when we pray and when we act in the world, we're still called and invited to act in faith and in expectation, and to see God work. It's one of the great unknowns of a life, of the life of discipleship, um, but it's one to embrace and to step into by going to God. And the thing I do like about this is Jesus, God doesn't punish us, but he wants to build us up in faith. He doesn't want to leave it to us, he wants to partner with us and build us up in faith. It's, um, the, so there we... I don't know if I've made sense there, but basically um, your prayer and your faith matters. But, but God's grace is bigger. God wants to build up your faith. And one of the tensions we have is that sometimes God answers the prayers that we haven't yet prayed. And sometimes it seems he doesn't answer the prayers 
that we have prayed, but he does, just not in the way we expect. Forgive me if I haven't made sense there. Um, what I want us all to do is see that we, we need to lean in to, um, to God. Let me give you an example. Uh, let's use preaching. I read something this week about uh, a wonderful man who is in his 90s who said that when you preach, you need to uh, teach from the Bible, explain it practically and simply, and then pray for unction. Unction, that kind of that spiritual move that happens. And that actually maybe the disciples had just presumed that because Jesus had sent them out before that they could just say, demon, get out. And actually the invitation is to constantly trust in Jesus, even in the places where he has gifted you and called you before to come back to him and to ask for his power and his strength. So you might be the greatest preacher in the world and you know how to, you know, the word is exegete, but take out of the scriptures what people need to hear. You know how to explain it very well. But actually, if you don't pray for unction, you're trying to do it in your own strength. And so in everything we do, we're invited into asking God to move in power. And so that we know that we are partnering with him. And it's not about us, but it's about us working with him. And that's what's going on there. The disciples have forgotten that they need to partner with God and they're just trying to do it in their own strength. Um, Jesus' response, though, is where there is faith is to increase it. And where there is doubt is to bring faith. Um, I'm going to read on uh, verse 30 to 37. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. They did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum, remember that's ministry headquarters, where he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. So they're passing through. So Jesus goes back to um, teaching them um, about what's going to come. So about going to be delivered into the hands of the men. They will kill him and then he will rise again. And so he is he is preparing them, even if they're not yet, they did not understand it, but he is preparing them for what lies ahead so that when it happens, uh, they go, ah, yes, we knew. It's a bit like uh, your annual appraisal, appraisal at work. You know, in that meeting, nothing should be said that is, that is a surprise to you. It should have come up in conversations since your last appraisal and in meetings since your last appraisal. And Jesus is saying, I don't, Easter is going to be a shock, but actually when you sit down and think about it, you'll realise it's not. So he's preparing them. Then they get back to Capernaum where they're based. And um, there's this argument going on about who's the most important, which I, you can imagine. Three of them have just been taken up a mountain to meet Moses and Elijah and hear the word of God. Are they more important than the rest of us? So you can see them all the debate about it. And they're in a culture that has this honour and shame aspect. So who's more important, who's not? And Jesus turns the whole thing on its head. Um, that actually the most important thing is to be a servant. Philippians chapter 2, may your attitude be that of Christ, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being found in human likeness, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus is showing them what he is like and is inviting them into the same way. The first in the kingdom will always be the last. The most important thing you can do in the kingdom of God is to serve um, and to humble yourself. And all God is asking you to do is to be like he is. And in discovering that, you will discover that that actually is, conversely, the best way to live.
And he illustrates it by taking a child, somebody who would have probably been quite ignored in the culture of the day. Um, but also, interesting enough, I think a great example of faith. Uh, this is a quick an aside, but um, children often get things that adults don't. We often see it in church and in school visits. Um, G.K. G. K. Chesterton talks about how children are, are more innocent than us because they haven't grown tired and old yet. And, and so Jesus says, actually, you need to come with the simple, in a good way, faith of a child. But also you need to um, take the position of a child and be willing to be ignored and be willing to be at the bottom. And then you will see God. This attitude of welcome and service mirrors God's nature. And if we have been born again, that is now our nature. So it's not about trying to be like him or to try and do something. It is actually about living out who we have become when we are born again. Become those for whom humility and service is our default. Reading on, verse 38. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because of you, because you belong to the Messiah, will certainly not lose their reward. The disciples probably thought they were quite important. Hey, look at us, we're hanging out with Jesus. And so when they see this guy doing stuff in Jesus' name, they're like, whoa, hold on a second. Did he send you out? Are you hanging out with him? And Jesus goes, uh-uh. The ministry that Jesus brings is not for an elite. It, everybody gets to play. Um, we see those wonderful um, illustrations Paul uses of the body. We, there is one body and we are all members of it. And so everybody gets to play in the kingdom. The disciples have this unique point in history and this unique status in that they are the people who hung out with Jesus. But actually they don't have a special status in terms of kingdom works. No, sir. And so that is just a real reminder that actually uh, um, that we all get to play. And then also there are sides. Whoever is not against us is for us. And so if in Jesus' name you do stuff and stuff is happening, fantastic. Um, and you won't be able to do something in Jesus' name. Uh, without being able to say good stuff about him because the people who will do stuff in his name are the people who've been born again and won't be able to say anything bad about him. Let's read on. So this is verse 42 to 50 to bring the chapter to an end. If anyone calls one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Quite simply there is, uh, you know, do not... um, lead people into sin that will cause defection or cause them to walk away, uh, lead people towards holiness. It's such a serious thing. You're better off throwing yourself in the sea uh, than, than letting people aside. Verse 43, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. This is easy. He's being rhetorical here. But it's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. Again, rhetorical. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. So you see that's repeated three times. Cut your hand off, cut your foot off, gouge your eye out. So that means it's really, really important. And it's basically, it's that kind of rhetorical device to say uh, the most important thing is to get into heaven. Get, and we're not getting to it, but get into the kingdom of God. Um, you know, cast everything aside that's going to stop you getting into the kingdom of God. So, you know, if you've got a, a, a right hand and it constantly causes you to sin and constantly causes you to turn away, you know, you're better off without it. Focus on the kingdom. Um, I want to talk about 
hell for a second. Um, the Greek word there's uh, Gehenna, which was actually it was a place outside Jerusalem. It was a rubbish dump where just fires burnt all the time, where they burnt all their um, all the rubbish of the city. And there's a few ways to think about this. So the Jewish thinkers viewed this as a place of eternal torment, uh, where uh, people consciously were tormented for all of eternity. Uh, and there's a Christian tradition there. Uh, some other thinkers think that it is an eternal fire, but actually that the torment will lead to annihilation. Because if you've cut yourself off from the God who gives life and you put yourself into a fire of destruction, you will be destroyed. Um, weirdly, I, I think it's, it's one of those ones, it's, you know, if you really want to decide on having an opinion about it, do. But actually, the key opinion there is that um, either way, it's not a good place to go. And the thing to say is, Jesus believes in it, and so should we. Jesus believes in hell and teaches about hell and talks about hell, and so should we. And one of the weaknesses is that we sometimes avoid the, the, the talking about or admitting that there is a consequence to sin and rebellion. And the consequence to sin and rebellion is hell. Jesus makes that very clear. And God takes it so seriously that he comes so that we don't have to go there. And that's the point I think sometimes we forget. We go, oh, I don't want to talk about hell. But actually God takes hell so seriously that he comes, becomes one of us and dies so that we don't have to go there. In, Ma- in Matthew 25, uh, Jesus says, talks about it as the place that has been prepared, not for us, but for Satan and his angels. Um, and by inference, I mean, you don't have to go there. This has been prepared for Satan and his angels And because of the cross and because of Jesus, we do not have to go there. We can be saved. So orthodox Christian belief is is a belief in in a judgment that is coming and in the reality of hell. Either either eternal uh, torment or annihilation doesn't matter. Hell. And orthodox belief is that God so loves us and takes that so seriously that he steps into our place he, in judgment. He steps into our place in judgment so that we don't have to go there. Um, as the, the writer of Christianity Explored says, you are more wicked than you ever dreamed or ever thought possible and more loved than you could have ever imagined. And the gospel needs those two points in order to land. Jesus is not, uh, God is not an angry judge who's going to send us all to hell. Jesus is not just a nice guy who wants to give us a better quality of life, but he is the rescuer of the com- and the saviour of the world. He comes to save us from the coming judgment. People generally find themselves coming to faith in Jesus when they become aware of the reality of their sin and the consequence of their sin and the holiness of God and the gap that exists between them. And then when they hear the gospel, that Jesus has closed that gap. That's quite that is when people come to faith when people come to faith is when they realize who jesus is who do you say i am and what he has done for them and so because jesus believed in it or believes in it because of course jesus is alive and taught about it we don't shy from it i know we find it hard to talk about but we don't shy from it Verse 49, everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salt again? Have salt amongst yourselves and be at peace with one another. Kind of picks up the Sermon on the Mount stuff from Matthew. We're called to be distinctive living. Salt adds flavour and preserves. 
and as the church we add flavor to culture around us and actually we preserve culture and the new birth in the spirit will bring us into a new way of being we will become the salt of the earth the light of the earth the city on the hill that makes a difference and our calling is to live in such a way that we are a preservative to culture and we add flavor to culture and people see the savior who is calling them to him that my friends is mark chapter nine it's a good one and as ever the three questions for us to think about are up in and act up what did i learn about the nature of god from mark chapter nine or what struck me about the nature of god from mark chapter nine in what did i need to hear uh, as a follower of jesus and out what truth did i hear that makes a difference in the lives of those i love and serve Uh, God bless you and we'll be with you next week for Mark chapter 10.